Welcome to Art on the Verge, the new 74 podcast series hosted by Bryce Volkowitz, discussing the drastically changing dynamics of the art world in the wake of the pandemic, from the way art is produced to how it's presented and experienced. We will also explore where creative thinking can take us and the potential of a collaborative culture in the new world. Let's join Bryce Walkowitz in conversation with artists, curators, educators, and collectors. Edward Brzezinski is regarded as one of the world's most accomplished contemporary photographers. His imagery explores the collective impact we as a species are having on the surface of the planet, an inspection of the human systems we've imposed onto the natural landscape. His explorations from stone to mineral, oil, transportation, and silicon are but a few of the subjects he continues to explore. His depictions of global industrial landscapes are included in the collections of over 60 major museums around the world, including the National Gallery of Canada, the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim Museum, the Reina Sofia in Madrid, and the Tate Modern in London, to name but a few. I am pleased and honored to have my friend Edward Bertinsky on this episode of Art on the Verge, a collaboration with Istanbul 74. How are you, Ed? I'm doing great. Thanks for the great intro, Bryce. It's lovely to hear from you. It's uh, It's been some time. Yes, we're all in isolation and uh, having to <laughs> sit still, unlike any other time in my life, for sure. No question about it. No question about it. Well, very excited to uh, share this um, share this moment with you. So, so with that, Ed, you and I share a genuine love and appreciation for the history of photography. The plight of the everyman was documented with empathy and grace by Walker Evans, Robert Frank, and Dorothea Lang. The human form was captured so elegantly and honestly by Edward Weston, Paul Strand, and more recently by Annie Leibovitz. And yet, to my recollection, there isn't an historical equivalent of photographers, as they may, by which to reference past environmental photographers. And so perhaps you can educate me on artists who have impacted you in this field over the years. Um, there have been a few. And back to the history of photography, um, I remember, I think it was the early 80s, and I had a chance to um, see an exhibition at the Met in New York. And it was these uh, mammoth plates um, by Carlton Watkins. They weren't of environmental uh, scenes, but they were of the Great West, uh, the, these fantastic um, albumin prints that were contact printed. And I was at that time, you know, pretty studied in the art of photography. I was working with large format, four by five, um, gelatin silver, with, with, uh, I was working with Kodak Films. And I was thinking that that was kind of where it was at. That was uh, the state of the of the art. And when I saw those images, um, I was absolutely blown away, realizing that 150 years later, I haven't really improved that much. In fact, uh, I, you know, these were the most, one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had with looking at prints, these contact prints. And then I learned further that Carlton Watkins did actually look at mining in the West Coast. Um, really destructive types of mining where, where they uh, go in and wash out uh, banks uh, of rivers to look for gold. It's like placer mining. And he did deforestation. So he was a really early 
um, you know, um, kind of chronicler of, of the compromised or at least the landscape in which we go to get our things. Uh, Darius Kinsey was another um, landscape photographer, but he was looking at the forestry industry in, in the Northwest, um, looking at it, you know, when those trees were still plentiful, the, 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 the magnificent um, Douglas firs or, or the cedars. Um, and you can just see these um, men standing in the cuts of these trees and, and, the, and the team of, of, of men who had made the cut standing in the actual cut before they dropped the tree. So there were these early images of, of um, you know, we as a collective species going into nature and, you know, removing, um, you know, uh, the material that we need to, to build the, the cities and the lives that we have. Uh, you know, fast forward a little bit further, and uh, I, I, I remember in the mid-1970s, uh, in the, in the mid-70s, the new topographics um, book came out. It was uh, George Eastman House did that. And um, artists such as Robert Adams, uh, Louis Baltz, Joe Deal, um, Stephen Shore, they're all chronicling this kind of new world that was emerging, the suburb, um, and how you know nature was being pushed back to this kind of expansive uh, period of um, uh, of city building and and our population growth. So they were at the you know chronicling the you know that early point of the great acceleration, uh, what it's called today. And and I think what was interesting about that work is that it wasn't necessarily an indictment, uh, nor was it a celebration, but it was certainly a questioning of you know, is this the world that we want? Is this the world, you know, uh, the way it should be or, or what it could be? And, and it was that questioning, it was that putting these things forward in a very deadpan kind of way. It wasn't trying to, um, you know, sway the viewer one way or the other, but it was like putting this kind of banal piece of evidence in front of you as an image. And it's asking you, the viewer, to really you know, wrestle with it, to really try to understand, um, you know, w what is the meaning of this image? And, and I found that to be very effective. And I don't know if I would have actually continued going down the road I did or had the confidence to go into man-altered landscapes had I not had that. And and the other artists at the time that were working, like Richard Mizrak, the Desert Canto series, large format color, was a great influence on me as well when I was going uh, through through school and, and looking at his work. Um, um, and Joel Sternfield was another great um, color photographer uh, at, at the time when I was studying that I was looking at and looking closely at, at their work and understanding how, you know, color to me was the, the, the new frontier. I started working with it um, kind of late 70s, early 80s, large format. And there weren't that many people using. In fact, when I when I picked up that medium of color and four by five, my teachers were saying, "Hey, what are you doing? That's like a commercial, you know, thing. And landscapes kind of over. Everybody's doing black and white street photography. Why are you, you know, focusing, you know, on landscape with with large format color?" But to me, there was something very exciting. That was something very very genuine in in my own interest to to go down that road. So I kind of ignored you know, what, what I was being told and what the, the, the trending at the time was to kind of strike out on my own and, 
and start doing uh, this large color work. And, and it was those photographers I mentioned, you know, uh, Richard, and et cetera, that, that encouraged me to, to pursue this idea of, of large format uh, photography. You know, uh, John Fall was another one that, uh, he just recently passed away from COVID, by the way, which I just, he was a friend of mine. And, and the last two months ago, he, 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 got, he got COVID and, and, and passed away, which I was very sad to hear. It's one of the few people that I actually know who had contracted the disease and, and, and not made it through it. So, um, so there were, uh, you know, again, a handful at that time. And, 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 and of course today, you know, large format color, color itself is, is ubiquitous. Sure. Well, I'm uh, first and foremost terribly sorry to hear about John's passing. Um, you know, Ed, I think that uh, that was a wonderful um, synopsis, if you will, of um, and, and 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 lesson, if you will, of artists who have have um, played a hand, if you will, at uh, focusing a light on the environment, and and certainly Stephen Shore, Joel Sternfeld. Uh, Richard Mizrak, and I think you uh, noted it so aptly in, in, in a very deadpan and often kind of humorous way, um, you know, not overly uh, biting, if you will, um, of, of the effects and the impact um, on the environment. So you and I have been working together for eight years now, and I've, I, I was drawn to, to a formalism compositionally that has come to define your work way beyond, or rather before we began working together. And so I ask you, what do you try to capture within the frame, quote unquote, when composing your pictures? Well, I think, I think it's a kind of a zeroing in. I think every photographer um, who's, you know, worked, you know, rigorously at making images, um, what you don't include, what you cut out is, is, is as important include. It, it is kind of coming to understand what the subject is. What are you after? And, um, and so it is about that, that kind of, you know, putting a frame around reality and how, when you put that frame around reality, it really does change um you know uh perception in other words i i remember once saying you know um that i, I was doing a, a a quarry series in, in in vermont and and my partner at the time uh was with me and uh and she couldn't um understand you know what it was i was looking at she was sitting in that space going you know i, I don't see where there's a picture and what you're pointing that eight by ten camera at so I found a, a, a crate or something and because it was a bit higher and I and she got up in the crate and looked and she like it was a revelation. It was like you don't really see it in in the context of, of reality. You have to attenuate into the thing itself where where something is happening, where a visual moment occurs. And and to me, it was like as uh, since then I've always said, you know, the photograph of, the, of these places, these industries that I photograph is way more interesting than the place itself. Uh, I mean, if you don't attenuate, if you don't kind of hive out the moment where something occurs that, that, that transcends the banality of that place, then you're left with, if you don't transcend it, then you're left with the banality of the place. And, and that's, you know, can be interesting. And some artists do work within that. 
but I was more interested in, in images that when you come across them, you stop and you say, where is this place? How could this place be? Um, that's element of the surreal or the element of the color and the texture and the formal aspects of the scene make you want to kind of engage with it. And to me as an artist, engagement with the art is, is the first step to communication. So, uh, so I was always interested in, in, in where do people stop and why do they stop? And when I find that place, I think that I'm actually tapping into this universal language, the, the call it the, the Freudian archetype that, that we all have it. And when it connects with our own mind, we complete it because art, like, like an image on the wall, you know, it's unlike a movie, the image, you have to complete its meaning. In a movie, the words and the music help you form the meaning of what you're seeing, and you're being guided towards that, the, the meaning. In a still photograph on a wall, you look at it, and if you don't know anything about the artist, you don't know anything about the subject matter, you don't know anything why you're looking at it, you're just looking at the image, what can you communicate at that level? And I'm really interested in that very visceral, very universal kind of, um, you don't need to read the essay to understand the piece, that, that there's something being communicated just by standing in the presence of it and looking at it. And to me, that comes from this unlocking of what makes an image work. And it's almost like breaking into the safe and the, all the tumblers have to drop, the, the light, the composition, the texture, uh, you know, the subject itself, the all overness, the, 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 you know, uh, many of these things. And when they all drop in, then you have an image that somehow um, is above, you know, what it would be <clears throat> just in that place or just in, you know, if you're standing in front of it, that that composition, that, that removal of that little section uh, has a transformative uh, power. I think that's a wonderful description. Just coming to, to mind is an artist like Arbus, Diane Arbus, who's, you know, I think works transcended the banality and to complete, as you know, you said so eloquent, eloquently, it's meaning. Um, so with that, we've reached an unprecedented moment in planetary history. Humans now affect the Earth and its processes more than all other natural forces combined. In 2016, you launched the Anthropocene Project. Tell us about this project and its relevance for you. Well, I'd worked with um, Jennifer Bashwell and Nick DePonsi on two earlier films. One was called Manufactured Landscapes, and that came out in 2006 and looked at the work that I did in China. Uh, 2013, uh, we released a film and a book on water, and the film was called Watermark. And at the end of that release, um, I was near the, the very end of the tour with Jennifer, and we were talking about, is there another project? And I had already been in a, um, uh, an Anthropocene project with, uh, with um, National Geographics, and they did a whole issue on it back in, I think it was uh, 2011. And, you know, I was very familiar with the term, and I had looked it up, Anthropocene. And Jennifer was looking at the term at the time, and she said, well, uh, it might be interesting to do a film uh, on the Anthropocene. And my first reaction was, well, if we did a film on the Anthropocene, although it's probably the most important word 
out there because it has to do with um, you know the planet, what we're doing to it, and the existential threat that we pose to not only all life form on the planet but to ourselves. So I can't imagine a more important word out there. But my concern to her was that you know who who's going to understand that word? And we put a, a film and a book out called Anthropocene. You know, will people think it's for them or or or, or how? You know, will you know, will will people go to it, or why will they go to it if the, if the word's largely unknown? I had been actually going to lectures and asking people, you know, ha, you know, have you heard of the word Anthropocene? And I'd get maybe three hands out of a uh, 150 people. So I realized that this word was not out there at all. And she agreed, but she said, but maybe as artists, our role is to evangelize the word, is to really get the idea of of what this word means. And 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 let's try and define it through through stories and images um, that 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 follow what these scientists are saying about you know how we are reshaping the planet and um, what are the things that we need to pay attention to um, you know uh, with regards to how we're changing the planet and at that point I agreed and so we set off on a five year journey um, both photographic photographing stills, doing uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, we also, uh, of course, did the film and an exhibition. So, so that was a, 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 one of the largest, most ambitious projects I've ever uh, engaged in uh, and my most collaborative projects. When you, you know, get involved in a film, you're, you're already expanding your, 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 your base of people that you have to rely on to get that done. But, but then with the exhibitions, uh, the augmented virtual reality, the deployment of those, of those uh, new techniques, new technologies, uh, as well as my printmaking and, and, and uh, um, continuing on with that. So it was um, um, a highly ambitious project. And, and, uh, but I do think that looking back at it, and it's still touring, um, you know, it's very gratifying. I think what my moment where it was a high work was uh, in Toronto. We had the exhibition uh, at the Arc Deli of Ontario. They had seen over 150,000 people come through. Um, but the AGO was um, wrapping streetcars with the Anthropocene as a big word and, and one of the images across the whole streetcar. And it was going up and down. Two of them were going up and down through the main intersections of the city. And I said, well, that's one way to get the word out there. So it, it was gratifying to see. Um, and it went on to um, National Gallery in Ottawa. I had well over 100,000 people and it went to Bologna, and they also had uh, an incredible uh, response. They had about 150,000 people come through that show as well. So, so far in the tour, it's been doing phenomenally. People are, are engaged with the subject and are learning about what that word means and following the work of the scientists who've been working so hard to, to define it. Sure. So you, you referenced said, and, 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 and again, something that you and I share real interest with is the developing technologies that I think will usher in the, the, the next age, the next day of not only photography, but the arts, you know, across mediums. Um, you referenced augmented reality, virtual reality. And in 1995, you established Toronto Imageworks, a commercial photography lab. I'd argue the last of a dying breed of dark rooms within the current context of digital. And yet for you, I imagine it's allowed you a flexibility to experiment unlike most photographers. So 
What's it meant to you to have your own photo photo studio at your disposal? Well, to, uh, just a minor correction, 1985, when I opened up Toronto Image Works, and back in the mid-80s, there really wasn't an opportunity to uh, make a living from selling prints. I was working as an artist making large color prints, but there, a market for that work had not emerged yet. Um, so I was making it on uh, only because of, there was a, a deep love of the medium and, 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 and this idea that I was compelled to, to, to pursue. So opening up a uh, uh, you know, a lab in 1985 was my ballast, number one, to uh, create an income that allowed me to continue, you know, going on with life. And secondly, um, I, I created something that would uh, put me at the vanguard and the forefront of, of printing technologies, of making the print. And as an artist, um, I see the print as, as a key thing. I, I'm, um, you know, on that level, I'm a real modernist. I, I, I love the actual crafting of the object. I, I, I want people to get, um, you know, in front of there and, and, and somehow, you know, and, and be taken by, by, by that image. And the way I thought I could best become a phenomenal printmaker was to start a lab where I'm producing not only my own work, but I'm having to work with all kinds of artists and photographers around, um, you know, around the world, so to speak, to 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 be able to make prints that are on the, on the cutting edge. And, and, and having started in 85, where everything was negative, color negative and um, or color transparency and internegative and a print. You know the limitations of what you could do were were pretty significant because you couldn't control contrast, you couldn't do local color corrections, you you couldn't retouch in any you know as we do today you know uh, without even thinking about it. Back then it was impossible. So if you didn't get it on the film, you didn't um, you know get it in the actual you know print. So there was a real discipline that had to be um, developed to work in the medium at that time. Um, so. And then watching the transition go from analog to digital, like the hybrid of, you know, okay, I've shot it on the four by five neg, I'm gonna scan it into a, a file. Now I'm gonna print it on a, uh, you know, a direct to, to paper printer, digital printer, um, and going through that whole you know, process. And then going to now where a lot of the work is just, you know, shot digitally on a digital camera and, and, and being printed on an inkjet printer. Um, it's a complete transformation uh, of how I used to work with Photoshop and everything else in between. So, so all through that piece by having a photo lab, oh, like whether it was Kodak or, or the latest lens companies or the latest paper, whether it was Konica or anybody at that time, I was able to test all, all the papers, all the optics, and was able to kind of move through this technological transition uh, from analog to digital and survive it because the lab is now you know, 35 years in operation um, and survived the paradigm shift. Whereas, at, you know, back in the 90s, there were about 25 labs in Toronto that were my size. Uh, there's only two left. So, so making that transition was all about moving with the latest technologies, understanding what the market uh, was looking for and what people couldn't quite get on their own at home and saying, I need an outside service to provide me these things because, you know, I can't get this level of quality. I can't get this result uh, at home or in my studio 
and and that's always the uh, the kind of value that that uh, you know a photo lab brings to the community is is it something that you can't quite achieve on your own and so that keeping my mind on that ball all the time has allowed you know the 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 the, the, the business to transition that paradigm shift so um, and and that also has has made me very curious about technology. So it, as soon as I saw that um, you know photogrammetry was a way you can use digital photography to go around and with a series of images capture an object, and then using software you can reconstruct that object in phenomenal detail and high accuracy. So now you can experience that object in the round in 3D. So you're the protagonist with the phone, or if you can, you know, eventually we'll have glasses that projected into our retina. You're actually in augmented reality. You're 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 experiencing photography in the third dimension. And to me, it's the very beginning of, I guess, what we you know saw in Star Trek, the hologram, or you know, like there there there's you know uh, the hollow room. You know, we can now experience you know full realistic 3D you know, as a digital experience. No question about it. And I agree with you. I think between photogrammetry, LIDAR, you know, uh, 8K projection, we're, we're, we're on the precipice of a new frontier, no question about it. So here's the big question of the day, digital versus analog. Well, there is something beautiful. Uh, when I, you know, when I finished with my eight by ten camera, I think the last images I took with it were probably in two thousand and eight. There's something beautiful, and there's something kind of luscious about the way the the, the, the tonal transitions were captured by by film. Um, now I'm working with um, you know a phase one fifty, so it's one hundred fifty megapixel. Uh, and I just got some of my results back in the last six months. I've only had it for about six months, and, and, and a lot of it has been up here. I've been working on a new project um, and using it, doing things I could never do before. One was one thing I'm doing now is called focus stacking. I'm able to do a series of images, and the software looks for the sharpest parts of that image and puts it together. But also with 150 megapixel, uh, and they also did a deal with Schneider, and Schneider even when I was working in, in analog, uh, 8 by 10 or 4 by 5 especially 4 by 5 I had the Schneider lens. It was a 120. And every time I looked at a, a Polaroid Type 55, it has a negative when you're on the scene. And you can look and see how well, um, you know, whether you're sharp and whether the, you know, the, the, the density is correct, your exposure is correct, whether the focus is good and, and uh, composition is good. So it's a way to kind of you know, verify your your work, and then with a 10x loop, 10 times loop, in the field, I'd point it at near the sun or something, and I can look through it. Every time I looked through that Schneider 120 lens, it was like it, it just sparkled. It was just crisp as it just was different than all my other lenses. It had this magic to it, and when I made the prints, they also had this vitality to them. Well, Schneider made a deal with Phase, and and they've um, you know really married those lenses digitally up to have the resolving power of the 150 uh, megapixel back. And I'm now looking at prints that are 60 inches by 80 inches off of these files, and they exceed eight by ten. They're 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 now kind of I'm looking at them and I'm going, wow, uh, you know this was beyond analog. So for me, you know, digital has has liberated me in some ways it, it, you know because I, I you know back when i shot eight by ten 
if I didn't get it on that negative, then I didn't have it. There was nothing I can do in post. <clears throat> Here, you know, but it took an incredible discipline. So, and it wasn't for the faint of heart to go down that road. I mean, at that time, just, you know, back in the late 80s, a sheet of film cost 10 bucks. And then to process it cost 10 bucks and to make a contact cost 10 bucks. And that's how much it would cost at my lab. I had a lab, so I got away a lot cheaper. But if you were a customer, you'd pay $30 for a contact. And usually most art uh, or photographers or artists who were traveling and doing stuff abroad would do two negatives. So that's $60 uh, to do one shot, 1990. So let's triple that today. So it would be like dropping $180 to make one picture just to give you the commitment to materiality when you're working with eight by 10, you know, now I'm working with a, uh, you know, a 150. it's, it's a higher quality in many ways than what that was, but there is no, um, you know, cost to it. it. It's if I don't like the picture, I just delete it. And so, so the, there isn't a, that kind of commitment, but at the same time, you can very, you can play a lot more. You can, you know, I, I, there are days I went for two days and didn't take one picture with my eight by 10, just was looking and waiting for the moment. Now I can play with contrast more. I can, I can adjust the contrast. I can work in areas that I could never imagine in the past. So, so for me, um, it's been liberating on the other side, digital is, ha has allowed, you know, through the iPhone and through photography, you know, the whole world to become a photographer. And that's another kind of uh, discussion altogether. And how do you dis distinguish yourself in a world where billions of photographs are, are being generated on a daily basis? And that's the other side of it. But I, I you know, again, it, it, it's another conversation, but it is uh, for me as a printmaker and a photographer, uh, it's been absolutely liberating. I, 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 I think Ansel Adams said it best when he said, there's nothing worse than a sharp image of a fuzzy concept. The negative is comparable to the composer's score and the print to its performance. Each performance difference and differs in subtle ways. So I've I've always appreciated, as I know that you do so much, um, which is so much what I appreciate about you, your appreciation for the print. So let me ask you, Ed, you've received over the years the incredible support of institutions, of, as you've mentioned, the AGO, as well as the National Gallery of Canada, um, but a few in the midst of the pandemic and cuts to institutions, are you concerned about future support? Um, well, it is worrisome to see, you know, um, cause I don't think we've really seen the full effect of, um, you know, what's, what, what the outcome of this pandemic will be. I think, you know, right now there's a lot of government subsidy, uh, right now there, there are, you know, resources that a lot of institutions can still lean into. Uh, to get them through tough times. Um, but, you know, depending on when they can open their doors up properly again to get the kind of uh, volume through the door that, that keeps, keeps them afloat, um, the question of how, you know, governments are going to react to their cultural institutions, I don't think we've seen the fallout yet. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I can say that it is worrisome in that um, there were, I think there will be a greater dependency on those individuals with means uh, who love art to be more supportive, um, you know, as individuals to, um, to 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 these institutions. I think governments are going to be really, really challenged. You know, how much you know, can, how much money can they print? You know, so to speak, to to solve this problem and without creating a 
massive inflationary uh, condition. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, it's going to take the community coming back. It's going to take people, I think, uh, supporting the institutions. Um, and, and, I, and I do also believe that it, 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 it will come back. I think, you know, people are, are you know, isolating. They, they want to look at art. They want to get out there. They want to engage. Um, you know, with the, you know, uh, with these institutions and go, go and see what, you know, what is happening on the contemporary scene or looking at master works. So I think that there is a, a, a deep desire to be there and to go, go to those places. And, you know, we can see that when you go to New York and look at the lineups and, uh, at, uh, you know, at MoMA or the Met or, 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 you know, any of the institutions, there's, there's a, a real, audience for for this um you know uh, for visual arts so you know it remains to be seen how quickly we can get back to normal um and uh how soon people can start to because one of the things about the, you know who's got affected in an outsized way uh culture for sure anywhere where there's gatherings where people have to be indoors uh and many at once uh, which would be, uh, you know, galleries and institutions, theaters for movies, uh, you know, they've been closed, restaurants um, and tourism. So you look at, you know, and travel and all of that. So when you look at those, um, which generally comprises about 12 percent of, of, of the um, economy, uh, and that's the percentage that has been largely affected and, uh and it's a question of you know how supportive governments are going to be to to those industries and to help them you know get going again and how soon we can go back to normal but but um but it is um it is worrisome to see once the smoke clears you know what's left standing i, I think i think we're going to see a fair amount of casualty i i i agree with you um sadly uh that being said I think to your point, we are at least right now consuming an enormous amount of material information visually um, online, be it through Instagram and other uh, forms of social media. And so I'm curious of where you fall re relative to these platforms and, and especially considering the tools and the filters afforded to everyone, considering the years and the costs involved in your case to perfect a technique and a craft. Well, I think it's I think it uh, it's important to to actually um, look at where a particular artist is in their career. And for me, I don't I, I think online actually w works quite well for me because right now with this latest project, everybody's at home isolating, but we can go into the studio from time to time as necessary. But we're all you know working on on Zoom conferencing and talking twice a week and getting things done because I already have a ball rolling. I've got uh, I've got projects. I've got things to do. I, my, my my contacts are there. My you know the institutions I'm working with are set up, and so I have a momentum. And 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 so it's different to 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 be in a spot where I am. And also in that momentum, uh, you know, if I'm putting out new work 
and somebody sees that work, well, a lot of collectors have seen my work over the years at art fairs or museums or in, in, in corporate lobbies or people's homes or whatever you, wherever you see it. And they know that there's a consistency in quality and, and they can kind of project to what, what it might be in this new body of work and that they probably won't be disappointed because I've had a chance to be in front of them in the past. If, you've, if you're an emerging artist, and you don't have your network set up with yet, and you haven't met the people you need to meet, the curators, the directors of museums, whoever you need to meet, uh, coll collectors, other artists, that you know being isolated is very difficult or, or, or being outside of that social network. And if you don't have a momentum, it's also very difficult. And when people see your art online and you don't have any history, I think it's very hard, much harder for um, collectors to make a decision to say, I'm gonna buy or not buy. So. You know, so for uh, if you're already in that world, uh, you know, it, 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 it can, I think, work a little bit better than if you're trying to get into that world. And that is very unfortunate because it's such a hard field to kind of break through anywhere in, in any case when you when you can't get in front uh, of people and you can't get the real work in front of people. I think that's going to be very hard for for those artists who are, are in early career or uh, getting started. So um, so I and, and it, it still remains to be seen. I think, you know, uh, how I think this fall we'll see whether you know, uh, there's an appetite for for um, exhibitions and people purchasing art. I, it's hard to say. You know, we are in uncharted territories. I'm sure there's you know you know some some sales happening out there, but uh, but at a much reduced scale to what it was. So you know, we're uh, in a holding pattern, hoping uh, hoping that this thing can can resolve itself sooner than later. I guess. No question about it. I agree with you. Um, we're, we're definitely in a holding pattern and, 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 and at no expense for younger artists, albeit that I think that Instagram and, and, and various uh, social platforms have flattened the terrain, if you will, for uh, entrance into the art world, at the very least, just getting your work seen. Um, so one last question for you, Ed. You've been working on a new body of work aptly titled Natural Order in the midst of quarantine with your new Phase 150. Tell us about this. Well, you know, I was I was out here doing and I was kind of learning the camera because I hadn't had a a, um, a lot of time with it in, in the you know busy days of studio uh, and being on board and doing a project I'm doing on, on Africa. And I was, you know, scheduled to be in Africa for the whole month of April. That didn't happen. Um, so I ended up up here with a camera. And, and, and this is in Toronto? It, it, yeah, but I, it, I went north of Toronto. So in early March, um, uh, I came up here to do some writing for the Africa Project. And I had all my books and I had, you know, hived off 10 days just to sit, sit quietly, uh, largely on my own and just, you know, work away at, at, at the Africa project. Well, it happened to be exactly when, you know, the world shut down and everybody like closed up shop. And, and so I, I, I'm still up here. I, I, I this is now going on the, my, my fifth month, um, you know, since I got up here and, and you're where again, kind of a, uh, which is about two hours North of Toronto, uh, uh, off Georgian Bay. Uh, actually, Georgian Bay happens to be 
you know, where the famous um, group of seven in Canada, where most of them did their work in Georgian Bay area. Most of it was a little bit further north and a little bit on the eastern side, but, but you know, there was some work done here. But anyways, here I am uh, on, the, uh, on the shores of Georgian Bay, just up on the escarpment and the beautiful terrain. And it was that change of season. So in 1981, I came up to this area, and that's one of the reasons I, I, I bought a property on this uh, in this area because I fell in love with the area. And I did some work a little bit further north of here, really looking at um, kind of nature, but looking at it as kind of a, a Jackson Pollock painting, this abstract expressionism where there's this all overness and, and high detail and, and gesture. Uh, throughout. <clears throat> and so I'm up here and I'm working with the camera and I said, well, instead of just shooting stuff in the house, I'm going to go and practice in the field. And I get out there and I start shooting and I really just re-engaged with, with, with this subject from 40 years ago of, of nature. And, and, I, and I do firmly believe that had I not had a deep relationship and a love of nature and hiking in the great north and canoeing and, and camping and fishing and all those things associated with the north and, and being in wilderness i don't think i'd ever make the body of work i made which is how we alter that wilderness to and make it yield to 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 our to our hand to our machinery to our technology so that's really been the work my work but a love of that place was at the key of understanding that something's being lost to our success so after being kind of pinned down by a a, a virus coming out of china um, you know, so now nature's got kind of, you know, us pinned uh, and where normally it's, uh, you know, our, 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 you know, us pinning, you know, nature or pushing nature back. There was this kind of reversal. But in that, I, I just felt that it just made sense for me to go back and just look at that space again and, and, and just kind of revere it, just be, uh, be captured by it, by the sense of wonder. And when I was looking at it, because all the leaves are off and, and, I, and I'm at the headwaters of four river systems, so there's a lot of swamp, there's com combinations of water and very, very fine, fine uh, twigs and branches and brush. And it's looking for these moments in there that to me was the kind of joy of just discovery I, I kind of recognize that the work that i was doing in anthropocene or whatever it was 95 percent perspiration you know trying to get there trying to get my permissions and all of a sudden i get to norilsk you know up in northern siberia after you know days of travel i get one day with a subject and work work like crazy and feverishly to get it and then hope i can get it in that day and i leave here i got day after day it's all the subject i want and i'm just looking and it's just going right back to that joy of seeing and joy of discovery, the, the, the kind of working through visual problems um, and, uh, and, and, and referencing this place and looking at the, the, the similarities of what I see, the fractals of, 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 of branches and how it mirrors our, our, our neurons in our brains or our veins in our bodies, you know, that there's this connection, you know, to, to, the, to, to, to these subjects that, that, that are somehow within us as well, that, but yet somehow you know, I saw that, you know, we might disappear somehow in the future, but I, I thought that nature, this endurance of, 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 of uh, you know, foliage and brush and forest, you know, is not going anywhere. The planet will always support this. So there is this kind of looking into deep, deep geological time and feeling after coming off the Anthropocene that this is 
the enduring thing that will persist on our planet. And, uh, and, and just, you know, kind of looking at it and, 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 and trying to make a series of images that speaks to that kind of the, the, the simple wonder of the natural world and that we are part of it. Well, I'd like to thank you, Ed. I, I know I speak not only for myself, but for countless others listening today. The truth is never easy nor always comforting to accept. And yet, through your pictures, we come to recognize our privilege and an acceptance that we hold the keys to a future enlightenment of this great green earth. And it's always wonderful to catch up with you, Ed. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bryce.